So, well, it has been a week, huh? It's been an interesting week. That's is that I don't know. Is that a safe word to say when events kind of just happen one right after another? I mean, it seems like every time I turn on the news or actually uh, look at the latest trending hashtag on Twitter, there's something else happening somewhere. Something is happening. Uh, it was it was a week. I feel like I have to talk about it, uh, even if this is just my therapy. How's that? Um, because, because it's crazy. But I thought, let's, let's kind of start this way. I know we have law enforcement personnel in our church. Maybe you're currently serving or have served in the past. I know we have a few that are retired, although I don't know if they're all here today. Um, would it, I'm not going to put you on the spot. You don't have to, I guess, if you don't want to. But would you stand so we can thank you for what you do? Week in, week out, day in and day out. Or we'll thank you even if you don't stand. How's that? Um, pray for these folks, obviously, in the light of things happening in our world, not just this week, but even the stuff that's happened prior to this. I, I, I'm really quite amazed to think about all the people I know just in our church body that are somehow connected or serving in law enforcement or even the military in, the, in that capacity. Uh, we have a lot that we can pray for. Um, maybe I should put together a list and like if you want it, put your name on a list so we can pray for you by name in case we don't, we don't want to forget anybody. There you go. Um, so pray for these folks. Uh, obviously, we saw that unfold a few days ago and even yesterday, uh, last evening, I think, that continued to happen out in, in Dallas. Um, and then the advent of s advent of social media and the things that we have seen this week broadcast live. Um, that's tough. Uh, I don't know if the ubiquity of cell phone cameras and, and whatever other means people use to, to broadcast things is a good thing or a bad thing sometimes because it certainly adds to the climate of tension that exists in, in our country and in our world. Uh, and it's, it's tough. See, I, I know, just have to be honest, um, I am Caucasian, uh, and I don't understand all the feelings of the African-American community. I had a great idea last night. I actually prayed. I like, okay, I thought I should have asked Pastor Pratt to be here today. Why didn't I think of that before 11 o'clock last night, right? Or actually, it was a little earlier than that. But I thought, Pastor Pratt is African-American, he worked in law enforcement, and he's a minister of the gospel. Um, that's, that's a pretty good resume. I, I would love to know. Maybe I'll still get him over here soon um, to tell us what he thinks, how we, as our church, can pray for and support and, and minister in the climate that exists without trying to lay blame anywhere. It's just it's there. It's, uh, it is the reality that many of us know, um, although, as I said, being Caucasian, I probably don't understand it and don't experience it in the same way, although we did have a conversation with the daughter about if you get pulled over by a police officer, what are you supposed to do? You know, those conversations are, are necessary. Now, I know she is a white girl, so of all the people in the world, she probably is thought to be the least threatening, but nonetheless, you want to have those conversations. You think about those in a week like this. How can you, in that encounter, make sure everybody's anxiety 
is somewhat tempered. Um, I want to look at Ezekiel 47 today. That seems like probably a really weird place to start, um, given how I started, but a really weird place in Scripture to go. Ezekiel 47. Um, Ezekiel's a fascinating book in the Old Testament, a fascinating prophetic book. Uh, and Ezekiel 47 in particular paints a picture. Now, I, I think it's, it's sort of a two-fold picture. I think it's rather literal, as in one day, this is going to be pretty much what we'll see, but I think also as we read it, you'll see the, the, the figurative picture that's there. Um, toward the end of, of his, his prophetic letter, Ezekiel writes this in verse 1. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the other gate, to the outer gate facing east, and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern regions and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be a large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Eneglam, where there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fall. Every month they will bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. Like I said, I think there's a literal part to that, because we can go to the book of Revelation and see that in the vision of heaven, John sees this river that flows from the throne of God, the very throne of God that begins to, to nourish the place. But I, I, I also see in it, a figurative encouragement, a figurative message to, in this case, Israel, and in our case, the church, that out of the ministry of God in our midst should flow this life-giving river. And you see how it gains momentum. It starts out in ankle deep, and then knee, and then waist, and then it's a river nobody can cross. And it flows into the sea, namely the Dead Sea, which is the Dead Sea because, any guesses? Nothing lives there. It's so salty. It's this, this very low spot where, where the salt has, I mean, you can even go and there's whole salt pillars around it from the evaporation that happens. The Dead Sea is also shrinking, by the way. And it says when this river that flows from the temple or from the throne of God out even from the people of God reaches this sea that is dead and salty and nothing lives in, it will turn that water fresh to the point that fishermen will line it and pull out all kinds of fish. There's a reason to go to heaven, amen? We got a fisherman in here. 
Thinking, now you're speaking my language, preacher. Now we're getting somewhere. We're going to get the fish in heaven. You ever wondered that? Surely you have now. Apparently, there is yet hope. And, and this, this picture that he paints and this, this image that God gives to Ezekiel and to his people and to us is, is the picture that I think was his design, that as God works in and through his people, the results should be obvious, the results should be life, the results should be hope, the results should be the things that people would flock to because it brings into the midst of a world that is exceedingly hopeless, it feels like at times, this measure of what everybody wants. Now, the question that's asked during weeks like this, or, wow, not so long ago we were praying for Orlando, and before that, what were we praying for? Frank? I mean, we've prayed for just about every place, and, and we should, and we shouldn't stop. I'm saying it just seems like it's a new hashtag, it's a new emphasis, a new social media meme every so often that comes up. We've prayed for all these things, and, and often the question comes back to, what, what causes this? Where does this come from? How does this happen? If you're wondering if I have the answer, I think I might. Okay, you're ready. Now I got you. You thought I was going to say no, didn't you? It's a three-letter word. It's the same three-letter word that's been there from the Genesis chapter 3. Sin. You can boil it all down, and it comes back to that. Why is this world broken? Because of sin. Why do people do things that don't make any sense to me? Because of sin. Now, that's pretty simplistic, right? That, oh, came to a Baptist church and he's talking about sin. Wow, who's surprised? Yeah, exactly, nobody, right? You're expecting that. It's what you would think would be it. But I think what happened, and, and as, as I think about our world in so many ways, not just in these things that make the news this week, but the things that are always before us, as, as I think about what's happening in culture, one of the things that I see happening, one of the root things that, that I think is, is going on is humanity as a whole, wherever you go, whoever you talk to, is trying to, this is my opinion, I don't have chapter and verse, this is my analysis, if you came for that, you're in luck, if you didn't, sorry, we'll get to the scriptures again in a minute, um, is that humanity is trying to deal with the same thing that started in Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent says, you will not surely die. No, 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 no. See, God's holding out on you. If you eat that, God knows you'll be like him. And even though these words aren't recorded in Scripture, they're kind of the undercurrent. And don't you really want to be God? Don't, don't you really want to have nobody telling you what to do? Have you noticed, kids, that's, that's their bent from the time they're born? I, I know there was a study. I didn't think to look it up. But they, they uh, dealt with just basic analysis. The word that children hear the most from the time they're born until, I don't know, 
Let's go with 18. I don't remember if that is some manner of year. Is, any guesses? No. Why? <laughs> Amen, sister. You've, you've had these conversations, I can tell. And what is the surest way to get any two-year-old to do something? Tell them not to do it. Right? Don't touch that. Well, why don't you want me to touch I don't know if they think this, but they do in my world. Why don't you want me to touch it? There must be something really cool over there if I touch it. I mean, I am the one whose parents, this was before, you know, you had those plastic things you put in the outlets that everybody has now for safety. I'm the one that thought, I'm not supposed to touch the outlet. It must be really cool. Let me take this bobby pin and see what happens because it has two prongs and fits really well. It worked out great. I learned some things <laughs> that day. I learned some things. Luckily, there's no scar, at least physical, <laughs> to show from it. I mean, we know at any age, we don't like people to tell us what to do. How many of you have a boss? I'm not going to ask you to answer the next question. Most of us have a boss, right? If you're married, <laughs> that's another sermon, nonetheless. And I will bet there are times when your boss tells you something to do and you don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And you think, those are the words that kind of rumble through your brain. I mean, there's something inside of humanity that we see reflected in the earliest pages of Scripture that tell us, made in the image of God, shortly becomes, well, then let's just be God. We don't want authority. We don't want rules. We don't want anything. Let's, let's not talk about these do's and don'ts. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And I think culturally, maybe even worldwide, there's this sense that humanity wants to get rid of that oppressive thing that's often guised as religion in their minds. And yet, Ezekiel 47 shows that this time will come and the picture of God is that when his people live in the way that he would desire us to live, flowing out from us would be this, this river that just gains momentum and brings life, is the opposite of, of oppressive, is the opposite of condemning. It is, it is something that is liberating. And it's what God desires from his people. I, I think about Jesus, who has his disciples around him. In John's gospel, I think it's in John 13, if I'm not mistaken. And he says this, a new commandment I give to you. Oh, I'm listening. You have a new commandment, God? Or you have a new commandment, Jesus? You have something new you want to lay on us as your followers because we're following you because we believe you're the Messiah. You're the one that's going to usher in this era of peace and prosperity for Israel. You're the one that we've hitched our lives to and we're counting on to make a difference. You have a new command. This is what we're waiting for. Give us this new command. And what was it? 
love one another? That's not new. Look it up. You got those fancy Bible apps and Bible things, the Bible Gateway and Bible Hub and all these different Bible stuffs. Just search love one another in Scripture. I will guarantee you the first time it shows up is not John chapter 13. It shows up a lot before then. This is a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, I think it says. Actually, let me just look it up. I want to get it right. We'll see if John chapter 13 is, is the place. Thank you. You've got to love those Bible apps. No, I'm just kidding. His Bible app is his brain. I know. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then verse 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If. You love one another. There, there's another verse, I don't know where this is, that says, um, as we do our good works, people will see the good things we do and glorify God the Father, God in heaven. That we should live our lives in such a way as followers of Jesus Christ, as people that are called Christians or whatever term you like to use for yourself, in that vein, I know there's different ones these days, we should live our lives in such a way that as people watch us live, their natural inclination is to praise God, to glorify God. That's pretty remarkable, because I would guess, from what I read here, there, and yonder, the first response people have a lot of times to Christianity isn't, oh, praise God for those Christians. What would we do without them? In fact, one of our, our leaders in the state convention asked us as pastors not so long ago, he said, ask yourself this question. If your church closed, went away tomorrow, just stopped doing business, would anybody in your community notice or care? That's a tough question, isn't it? Would anybody notice or care? And I think the same idea in that question is present in what Jesus says to his disciples. This new commandment, they'll know you're Christians by the way you love one another. And, and they'll see how you live and they'll glorify God. They'll, they'll see something about the people of God living out their lives in a way that makes a difference. I picked up a book this week in light of all this. I don't know how it came across my my radar, but it's by Tony Evans. Y'all know who Tony Evans is? Dr. Tony Evans in Dallas um, wrote the book. Uh, I wrote it down. Oneness Embraced. And he's real clever. You know, somebody's real clever. And in the title, Oneness, one is in white, and in embraced, race is in white. So the idea is a racial book, one, one race. And obviously he's not saying that because that has a whole different connotation, so don't go there. But his idea is, as an African-American pastor, he makes the point and has made it for years, why is 11 o'clock Sunday morning, which I know it's 9 o'clock, but 11 o'clock is like the traditional time most people used to go to church a few years ago. Why is 11 o'clock? How many of you go to a church that starts at 11? A ever in your life? Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. Okay, 11 o'clock, the most segregated hour in America. Again, it's a good question. It's an uncomfortable question. I got answers. They're usually like answers that make me feel better. 
they usually go something like this. The culture of the black church is different than the culture of the Anglo church in the sense of if you've been to Pastor Pratt's church or I know they came here one Sunday, no offense, they're a little peppier than you are. (laughs) They almost look like they're excited to be there. And you guys are like, I dare you, Pastor, go ahead and bless me. (laughs) It ain't happening today. You know, it's different. And you could go even, we're we're Baptists, so we might be the happy medium. is Is it the Presbyterians that are called God's chosen frozen? Tom's shaking his head. You know, there we go. Or frozen, I don't know how it goes. Anyway, you know, there's this continuum. And then, yes, we do gravitate toward churches and their expression of worship that we probably feel comfortable with. And also, we gravitate toward a church where when we go in, we feel comfortable in it. Maybe because we look around. There, it was actually a church growth principle years ago. It was called the homogeneous unit principle. I don't know if you remember this. Yeah, isn't that exciting? It sounds like I know stuff. I don't. Um, I did not make up that word, Stephen, just for the record. You know that one, I know. The homogeneous unit principle went like this. If you're going to grow a church, figure out the people that come to your church, and your church is going to attract people just like them. And churches that grow are uniquely homogeneous. Everybody's just alike. They're from the same background economically, culturally, racially, fill in the blank. It just was the way, and that was a principle. Like, they taught that to people in church world, in seminary, when I was there many years ago, and it was almost 30, which is really scary. But anyway, um, that was like, here's the book. Read it. Donald McGavern, Homogeneous Unit Principle. Learn this and put it into practice. And then I open the Bible, and I get to this, this book of Revelation. You may have heard of it. What does it talk about? Heaven, right? All in favor of heaven, say I. Good, I'm in the right place. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Even people that live like hell one day want to go to heaven. Isn't that right? When that time comes, I'm going to go to a better place. Good luck with that, right? No. No, we, we kind of have that. Everybody wants to go to heaven. And in the book of Revelation... In, in chapter 7, verse 9, it, it speaks of those gathered around the throne of God. I should have marked my places better. After this, John writes, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. And here's the, the, the part of the, the verse. From every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And a couple chapters before, in verse 5, it says that in 5-9, it says Jesus came and was slain so that his blood purchased men for God from every tribe, language, people, or nation. So there's just like on the same page in my Bible, two places in this view of heaven that we already agreed everybody wants to go to, right? It's a good place. There's fish in there. We covered that earlier. Everybody wants to go to. What's the picture of that place? You look around, and it's full of everybody from everywhere. It is not the most segregated place, unfortunately, as is at times, the church. 
you, you read Ezekiel 47, and you see this picture that God paints through the prophet. And you see it realized in the book of Revelation, that stream that flows from the throne and nourishes all and the, the people that are around there. And I, I'm happy to say, nowadays, there's not that homogeneous unit principle taught. It's more about, hey, let's make our church look a little like heaven, where everybody's welcome. Because the unifying factor of church shouldn't be how we're alike by how much money we make and by our, our, our background socially or culturally or racially. The unifying principle of the church is the person, Jesus Christ. I like football. Have I mentioned that? I don't know if I have or not. You'll just have to take my word for it if I've not thrown it out there. And, and it's starting soon, but that's another story. Anyway. Okay, back to, back to church. Um, football is a great thing. And on a football team, there are lots of different people, right? They come from all sorts of backgrounds. Some of them from the poorest of neighborhoods, others that have, have had the best training their whole life. And they get together on a football team. And whatever their differences are, culturally or otherwise, seem to go to the background when they put on the uniform. And they go out there as that team, and they don't all do the same thing. Have you noticed that? They don't all play the same role. There's 11 positions on offense and defense, each one of them designed to do something different. But I do know that when they put on that uniform and they go on that field, they all have one goal. And whatever their background is, Whatever their role is on the field is part of the bigger picture. What is our goal? If you're on the offense, those 11 people, they're trying to score points. If you're on the defense, it's trying to keep the other team from scoring points. And overall, all of them, at the end of the game, want to see more points on their score, side of the scoreboard than on the other one, right? Pretty simple stuff. The Olympics are starting soon, maybe. I don't know. Are they going to cancel them? That's the rumor somewhere. And here's the interesting thing. People will go from all the countries of the earth, and this is one of the rituals, is at the end of the event, there are the, the gold, silver, and bronze medalists. And they're put on the platform. You know what they do not do? They do not ask Mr. Gold Medalist or Mrs. Gold Medalist, what is your favorite song, and we'll play it for you. What do they play for the medalists? The, the national anthem of their country. And if it happens to be someone from the U.S. of A., we swell with pride as we hear those, those notes played and have we, as we've watched the competitions, we're celebrating the medalist from our country. And I think about us as the people of God. And I did this because I'm talking to you. You're the only ones that can hear me right now. But the people of God is bigger than those who like First Baptist Church on Facebook. People of God is bigger than those who like any church in the Keys on Facebook. Is it even possible? What we call the people of God is bigger than those who are part of a church 
in the good old U.S. of A. Is it possible that the people of God are part of a kingdom that is not of this world? And though we live in this world and deal with the realities of this world, you and I are part of something so much bigger. We know it's bigger because Scripture tells us one day this world ends. There's a line. And that's the end. Getting there is ugly, right? Lots of bad stuff happens. Again, that whole book of Revelation thing. Lots of stuff happens. But on the other side of that line, things get good. Behold, the voice from the throne says, I have made all things new. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God like a bride beautifully prepared for her husband. And in that moment, it says, there's a new heaven and a new earth for the old had passed away. That's a pretty remarkable thing. Now, let me ask you, what does new mean? Let me, let, let me give you an example. You tell me if this is new. You go and buy a car next week. And when you go to the lot, the salesperson says, this car is new. You say, ooh, I like it. So tell me about this car. Well, this car is a 1985 Suzuki. Excuse me? Yeah, yeah, 198, but you said it was new. Oh, absolutely it's new. What do you mean? It's 31 years old by, you know, actually 32, because are we already selling 2017s nowadays? 32 years old, how can it be new? Well, what we did is we took out the old seats and put in new seats. And we scraped off the old paint and put on new paint. We took out the old radio and put in new, so it's new. Right? Of course not. It's not new. New means new, right? It means brand new. Brand spanking new. I don't know what spanking has to do with new, but apparently it's important. <laughs> Is that like when the baby comes out, you got to smack it once so it'll breathe? I don't know, but apparently that's important. New means new, and, and the Bible says it's new. Now, why do you get something new? Why sometimes do you trade in or sell your old car to get a new car? Is it possible? It's because the old one's busted, broke. Otherwise, you've looked at it, it's got issues, and maybe the amount of money you had to put into it to fix it up, you could better use that money as a down payment on a newer car. If anybody is in the process of buying a car, this is not sponsored in any way by a husband <laughs> for his wife or a wife or her husband trying to convince you something. You just, I'm just using it as an example. There it is. You, you say, that, and that's, that's this world. This world is broken. I am glad that I am alive. I am glad that I am in America. I'm glad that I was born here and that I've spent my life here. I enjoy July 4th. 
celebrating, as all of us do, the patriotic things and the, and the things that the, the parade. Woohoo! Okay, maybe you didn't like it as much as I did. Fireworks! They're still going off. I don't know, in, in my neighborhood anyway. Yes, it was. But we, we lived through it. Um, we love that stuff. But if you gave me a choice between this and that, I'm picking that. That's better. That is the result of what happens in Ezekiel 47. That is the result when God sets right all that's wrong. That is, as Scripture says, where our citizenship is. We are, yes, in this world, but this world is not our home. And we have to be careful. Here's the thing. As Christians, we have to kind of balance. Yes, this world is not our home, but God has left us in this world for a reason. And while we may not like some of the things that happen, we have the opportunity as God's people to make a huge difference where we are in the midst of this broken world so that one day when Jesus does return and everything is set right, as many people get to be a part of that as possible. That should be our goal because, by the way, the Scripture tells us that's God's heart. Peter says, a verse we often quote, it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he's patient with us. Thank God he's patient with us. Anybody here ever made a mistake? If your hand's not up, uh, I'm in this week and we can talk. Or ask your husband or wife, they'll point out what you've forgotten. No. We all have messed up. Any of you made big mistakes, like, I regret that I ever did that, and I hope people have forgotten I did that. Okay, good. I got some of those in my life, too. I'm glad that though some of the mistakes I've made have hurt people, some of the mistakes I will continue to make will probably hurt other people, one day all of that can be redeemed. Somehow, in a way I don't understand, God can take the brokenness of this world and be glorified. And I see it because he took the cross and turned it into the resurrection. That is our hope. And so Ezekiel paints this picture. He says, here is what should be the result of people living the way God designed us to live. As God's people, we should live out. Jesus says, here's a new command. Love one another as I have loved you. And when you love each other that way, people will know you're one of my disciples. And we talked about earlier that verse that says, people will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I like mayonnaise. Anybody else like mayonnaise? We can only eat Hellman's mayonnaise in our house. Are there any Kraft mayonnaise lovers? Kraft. Um, let's see. We're kind of in the South. Dukes is apparently a big Southern Dukes. Any Dukes man? Bama? There's a Bama mayonnaise? 
ask a silly question. I like mayonnaise. Now, mayonnaise is technically an emulsion. And an emulsion at some level is when you take two things that don't mix and somehow make them work. And usually it's because there's another ingredient that sort of acts as the bridge between those initial ingredients. I think in mayonnaise, egg yolk is kind of the magic thing that brings together the disparate items into a beautiful concoction of yumminess on my sandwich. <laughs> or avocado, or where else do you put? Oh, uh, this is our growing up. A bed of lettuce, pineapple, and a dollop of Actually, it was Miracle Whip where I grew up. Any Miracle Whip fans? That is not mayonnaise. <laughs> I have been told apparently that is not because it has sugar in it. I don't know what it is. Miracle Whip is sweeter. I didn't know I was going to start something. I brought up Miracle Whip and the spirit moved. It's amazing. I don't know. So in mayonnaise, not Miracle Whip, but in man that emulsion works. And I think about us. Just look around. It's okay, really. I'm giving you permission. I, you're, you're all still looking at me. <laughs> there are people here that are different. Now, I don't know. We have a few twins here. So they might could say, I know somebody in the world that's just like me, but I'm going to guess not exactly. We're all different. What brings us together? What, what's the thing in this emulsion that makes it work? Right. Jesus. Cross. The resurrection. And we're all sort of, even though we're different, still kind of alike in a lot of ways. What can bring us together with anybody that shares that faith is Jesus. And what should happen is that when we get together as God's people, whether it's in this building or anywhere it happens, as you've probably heard that expression, that bit of a cliche, maybe we don't go to church, we are the church. God called us to be the church. You can be the church. Here's a crazy thing with people that don't even go to this church <gasps> I know did I say that out loud you can be the church with people that aren't Baptist <gasps> I can't believe that slipped I hope this isn't on tape no of course it is you can be the church anywhere and we're called to be the church because you know this is this is fun Sometimes. This is good. But there are walls around us here. Churches used to be called, we're lighthouse in the community. That's kind of how we talked about it. And that's kind of a biblical thing. But, but there's, there's, there's one issue with thinking about the church as a lighthouse anymore. Is that people don't really know what goes on in here. And in many ways, there's nothing remarkable about a building that sits on a highway with a large parking lot that cars go in and out of. 
There's nothing there that can necessarily point people to Christ. The church is most effective when it's scattered. In fact, the whole book of Acts is what? God saying to the church that wanted to hold up and say, we know Jesus, yes we do, we know Jesus, who cares about you? <laughs> the book of Acts is God using outside forces to push the church out of their, their comfort, holy huddle, their, their meetings into the world that desperately needed to hear the good news of the gospel. And so I'm glad you're here today. I hope you come back. And I hope when you come back, you bring someone with you. Not because they need to go to church to hear the sermon, but because you've met them and invested in their life and they've seen in you the character of Jesus Christ and they've experienced in relationship with you the kind of love that Jesus talked about as a new commandment and they've in seeing your life and in experiencing that life with you have said there's something about you that makes me want to somehow glorify God and maybe even they come with you because you had the opportunity to tell them about your faith and they decided to place their faith in the same Jesus that saved you because that's sort of what we're supposed to do right go as you go, everywhere you go, and make disciples. I have a really, I can be, I should say, kind of a pessimistic person, and I have a really bad fear that weeks like this aren't going to be out of the ordinary. Because it seems like for the last several months, every week something happens. There's this attack, there's this death, there's this mass killing, whatever the latest is. And maybe all that really means is that the time is even shorter than we realize till Jesus returns. And if that's the case, we got some work to do. Because we know the truth. We know the one who is the hope of the world. We are empowered by his Holy Spirit to make a difference. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for what you have done. thank you that you sent your son Jesus God that he willingly left the glory of heaven for the manger that he humbled himself and became obedient Obedient even to the death on the cross. And I thank you that in that cross is the hope of salvation, is the promise of the forgiveness of sin. Lord, today, as your people who know you, we pray that you might use us 
in a way that you desire to make a difference in our world, in our broken world, yes, but in a world that needs to know the hope that is in you. God, thank you that even when circumstances like this week happen, that you can somehow still be glorified. Your purposes can still prevail. Thank you for being with us here today. In Jesus' name, amen.